So in Luke 9, 21 and 22, which I just read for you, Jesus teaches that He's going to the cross. He says it explicitly. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And in Luke 9, 23 to 27, we learn that everyone who wishes to be saved by this Savior must also take up their crosses and follow Him. Then Luke 9, 28 to 36 shows Jesus on a mountaintop revealing His glory to Peter, James, and John. The passage that we're really focusing on this morning, which is verse 37 onward to the end of Luke chapter 9, stands in stark contrast to that preceding section. In the preceding section, 21 to 36, Jesus raises the bar quite high for prospective disciples, telling them that they must deny themselves and take up their crosses daily and follow Him. Jesus sets a high standard painting an impressive picture of the ideal Christian who would follow Him, taking no thought for Himself, and laying everything down for the glory of the Savior. This is the kind of Christian that I ought to be. This is the kind of Christian that you ought to be. This is the kind of Christian that the disciples ought to be. But in Luke 9, 37-62, the disciples fail to meet the standard. They are not spiritual giants. They are not ideal Christians. And so in this passage, what I'm trying to draw out for you this morning is contrast that is latent in this chapter. The outline of this sermon is really quite simple. Each of the small units of narrative that we just read show us one aspect in which the disciples of Jesus are lacking. In verses 37 to 43 we see that the disciples lack faith. Verses 43 to 45, we see that the disciples lack understanding. In verses 46 to 48, we see that the disciples lack humility. In 49 and 50, we see that the disciples lack perspective. In 51 to 55, we see that the disciples lack awareness of context. And in 57 to 62, we see that would-be disciples of Jesus lack commitment. In this passage before us this morning, we see the inglorious disciples bumbling along in failure after failure. They cannot cast out demons. They don't understand Jesus. They get their priorities confused. We're going to work through each of these deficiencies one by one and see that in view of their shortcomings, the disciples are not heroes. Then after exploring the idea that the disciples are failures in every category, we're going to see God's grace given them in Christ to save them anyway and to commission them to work in His kingdom anyway. The big idea of this morning's message is this. And it should be an encouragement to us all. It is to me. Jesus loves failures. 
Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, intentionally included these stories of the disciples' failings immediately after the glory of Jesus was revealed in the transfiguration in order to contrast the excellency of Jesus with the substandard performance of the disciples. This contrast drives home a fundamental truth that we see throughout all Scripture. Salvation is not granted to us on the basis of our merit. We don't deserve it. In fact, salvation comes to us in spite of the fact that we deserve the very opposite. The contrast drives home the point that Jesus does not love and save people because we are good. Jesus loves us despite the fact that we are failures. Jesus loves failures. Kids, that's the big idea. If your parents ask you at lunchtime what the sermon was about, Jesus loves failures. So with that statement in mind, let's begin. In verses 37 to 43, we see that the disciples lack faith. Jesus comes down from a refreshing mountaintop experience with His Father and with His perfectly sanctified friends. Moses and Elijah, who are no longer battling with sin and who are no longer bumbling, inglorious failures. And Jesus comes back down to this present world where people are still pretty messed up. He comes down from the mountain right into a frustrating controversy. Luke doesn't record what I'm about to say, but the parallel account in Mark tells us that the scribes were arguing with the disciples that Jesus left at the bottom of the mountain. That's in Mark 9 and verse 14. Jesus had taken only Peter, James, and John up with him. Which means that there were nine still at the bottom of the mountain. And it seems that they had gotten into it with the scribes. Well, Jesus was up on the mountain. Here's his disciples arguing with the scribes at the bottom of the mountain. This controversy in itself must have been somewhat frustrating for Jesus. I mean, there's a time and a place to take a stand for the truth. And we know that the scribes were not on the right team, so to speak. And, you know, we understand all that. But coming down from the fellowship that he had experienced with his father and with his perfectly sanctified friends, to come back down into the fray of imperfect life below must have been somewhat frustrating in the first place. And in the midst of this fray that Jesus returns to, a man comes to Jesus and begs him to look at his son who is demon-possessed. This is in verse 38. He says in verse 40 that he has already asked the nine disciples who were there to cast out the demon, but that they couldn't do it. Jesus responds with frustration. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? And quote, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Jesus Want, like we, we know from what the Scripture says that there's a sense in which He just wanted to get out of here. Like we read in John, if you knew where I'm going, you would be happy that I said to you that I am ascending to my Father. Right? That I'm going away. Who is Jesus frustrated with? Perhaps He's frustrated with the father of the child. Did the father of the child not have enough faith in Jesus? Well, 
it seems that the very fact that the man brought his son to Jesus indicates that he had at least some faith. And some faith is all that Jesus requires, isn't it? Mustard seed. More likely, Jesus was frustrated with the disciples who lacked the faith to cast this demon out. In Mark 9, which I already mentioned, and in Matthew 17, Jesus says that the disciples could not cast this demon out because they didn't have faith. So when Jesus says, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Faithless generation. He's talking about His disciples. Now, at the beginning of this chapter, we didn't read it, but at the beginning of Luke 9, these guys were casting out demons left, right, and center. So what happened? Most likely, the disciples had become overconfident in their own ability to win spiritual victories. In Luke 9 and verse 1, we read that Jesus gave them power and authority over demons. That means that it was whose power all along? Jesus' power, which He gave them over demons. It was Jesus' power all along that made their ministry effective. But most likely, the, de- the, the disciples had grown accustomed to seeing demons obey their commands and became overconfident in their own ability. As if it was their power that made their ministry effective. And this goes along with what Jesus says in Matthew and Mark, that this kind of demon can only come out, what? You know it. By prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting demonstrate faith or confidence in God. Lack of prayer and fasting demonstrates confidence in ourselves. The disciples who did not pray and fast were failures who didn't pray and fast thinking that they had it in themselves to win spiritual warfare. Why would we pray and fast? We have authority over demons. You see? But before we become too too critical of the disciples, let me ask you a question. Are you characterized by prayer and fasting? Do you fall on your face regularly and beg God to save your friends? and your family members, and your co-workers, and to intervene in hopeless situations? Do you immediately respond with prayer and fasting when you see someone in the grip of sin? Do you immediately respond with prayer and fasting when you see someone in any kind of spiritual bondage and needing to get free? Do you know that you are powerless in and of yourself to do anything about their situation. Anything less than a lifestyle of unceasing prayer is a demonstration of our faithlessness. Anything less than regular, consistent, persistent petition to God for spiritual victory in our lives and in the lives of others demonstrates a functional overestimation of the power or of our power and a, and a, a functional underestimation of God's power. So we see in this section that the disciples lacked faith. 
In verses 43 to 45, we see that the disciples also lacked understanding. There were things the disciples didn't know, or didn't understand, I should say. Big things, like Jesus' impending death and resurrection. Though Jesus had plainly told them, remember? Back in verse 22. They still could not comprehend that Jesus was going to die. We think to ourselves, how dense could they be? Bro, it was like 20 verses earlier. He told you. Yet when we open the scriptures and we see the plain revelation of God made therein of so many spiritual things. And yet there is so much that we just, we don't understand. And if you've been a Christian for some length of time, I'm sure you have learned things at some point and said, how did I not see that before? It's so clear in the Bible. So we say how dense could they be, but how dense could, can we be at times? The state of the disciples was a state of spiritual ignorance. And we too are spiritually ignorant. See, it says in verse 45 that it was concealed from them. This shows us that apart from the Holy Spirit's revealing work in our lives, not only do we fail to perceive the things of God, but we actually cannot perceive the things of God. In and of ourselves, we lack understanding. We are not, we are not spiritually perceptive beings. Even people who claim to be spiritually perceptive and tuned in to spiritual realities are not spiritually perceptive. In fact, they're among the most blind, unable to grasp the truth of God apart from the Holy Spirit who reveals the things of God. Romans 1.18 says that in our natural state, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7 asks rhetorically, What do you have that you did not receive? If we know anything true about God, it is because He has opened our deaf ears and opened our blind eyes. We are, apart from the Holy Spirit's initial and ongoing work in our lives, dull and imperceptive beings. What a bunch of failures these disciples and we are. Moving on. Verses 46 to 48, we see that the disciples lack humility. (laughs) Even, okay, immediately after failing to cast out a demon and failing to understand the spiritual truth that Jesus was talking about, what is the next thing that we read the disciples are doing? Verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. (laughs) Do you catch the irony here? These failures were boasting about their greatness. If this isn't pride, I don't know what is. But are we any different? 
before coming to Christ, we jockey for position in the rat race. Boasting of our intelligence, our wealth, our good looks, whatever. Now, I'd like to say that it's a different story after coming to Christ, but you've been in churches long enough. You know that Christians do the same thing. The things we brag about may change. May, may change, but sometimes even not. Sometimes even the Christians are jockeying with one another about intelligence and wealth and good looks and whatnot. But even, even if the things that we brag about changes, all too often the bragging doesn't stop. We boast about our good doctrine. Well, at this church, we believe the Bible. Well, at, at this church, we do it like this. You, you see? We boast about our Christ-likeness. Lord, I thank you that I am not like that person and that person. You remember in Matthew 18, it was the Pharisee who talked like that. We boast about our evangelistic zeal. I heard some shameful boasting this uh, past week from a, a prominent member of the Southern Baptist Convention talking about how many souls he's led to Christ and how many crusades he's led and this and that and just just shameful as if as if he could get a little slice of the glory pie that really ought to be going all to Christ Ephesians 2 8 and 9 says by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God not a result of works so that, what's next? No one may boast. Again, what did you have that, what do you have that you didn't receive? What right have we to brag who have been saved by grace? None. And yet we do it. We are just like the disciples, spiritually inept people who really ought not to boast at all. Yet, we find ourselves jockeying for position in God's family amongst all others who are likewise saved by grace. So the disciples 2,000 years ago and the disciples now lack faith, understanding, humility. In verses 49 and 50, we see that the disciples lack perspective. <clears throat> The type of perspective I'm talking about here is a sense of proportion. If someone were to look at a live microscopic piece of bacteria through a high-powered microscope, it would appear to be many times bigger than it actually is. And therefore, after seeing a magnified image of that microscopic bacteria, it would be silly for that person to phone the police and the news networks and so on and so forth and claim that the world is being invaded by large, huge, creepy looking organisms. I have seen it with my own eyes. Likewise, it is, it's silly for us to blow things out of proportion, making a bigger deal of things than is warranted. 
the disciples in verses 49 and 50 are upset that someone is casting out demons. They are upset that people who were troubled by demons are now no longer troubled by demons because the person casting out the demons isn't part of their tightly knit group. Perspective is called for. Jesus tells them, whoever's not against you is for you. In other words, you're on the same team. In other words, don't make a big deal of the fact that this guy is not one of our immediate group. We're all on the same larger team. Rejoice that demons are being cast out. Don't lose the forest for the trees. Rejoice that the kingdom of God is advancing. We find a similar principle outlined in Philippians 1, 15 to 18. Paul, writing from prison, says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Paul, the point that both Jesus and Paul want us to understand is that our, is that agreement on primary things is weightier than difference on secondary things. This is not saying that differences don't matter or that secondary things are unimportant things. This is simply saying that we should put things in perspective. Does your Christian friend from another church have some misguided or erroneous beliefs about this or that? Then talk to him about it. Reason from the scripture and seek to persuade, but put it in perspective. If he loves Jesus and clings to the cross for salvation, then stand together with him in Christian unity. Rejoice in what he has right, even if there are a few things he has wrong. It's all too easy for us to write people off about secondary things rather than standing in solidarity with them on cent the central point of Christ crucified for sinners. We, like the disciples, all too often seek to prevent the ministry of men and women who have first things right and second things wrong. We, like the disciples, often lack perspective. Second Timothy 2 and verse 15 says that God's servants are to rightly handle the word of truth. The King James Version of that verse says that we should rightly divide the word of truth. And if I can pick up on that word divide, we could say rightly proportioning the word of truth. We ought not to make microorganisms look like freakishly large space invaders, and we ought not to make elephants look like microscopic organisms. We should be big on the things that the Bible is big on, and we should be small on the things that the Bible is small on. In other words, we should major on majors and minor on minors. Is Christ being preached? Yes, okay, excellent. Is he being preached the right way? 
by the right motive? No. Is that a problem? Yes. But which is the weightier of the two things? The fact that Christ is being preached. Now, I know Jesus handpicked his disciples. But sometimes I think about this fellow that was casting out demons. And he, he was like this close. <laughs> like he like came into contact with the disciples of Jesus. So somehow he's like hearing about Jesus and hearing about what's going on. But for whatever reason, he didn't, he didn't leave everything and join up. He, didn't, he wasn't following around closely the way that even some of the crowds were who weren't handpicked. Sometimes I wonder whether he, would, he regretted that. As he got greater and greater clarity, as I trust he would have, even the handpicked disciples did, and especially after Pentecost, I wonder if he would have went. You mean, Jesus was all of this, and I thought he was this, but really he was all of this. Man, I wish I would have quit my job and went down to Judea and followed him around. Maybe he should have been with Jesus and the disciples. I don't know. But in any, in any case, they definitely shouldn't have been upset that he was casting out demons. Again, this is the perspective. It's blowing things out of proportion. Now in verses 51 to 55, we see that the disciples lack awareness of context. After the Samaritan village rejects Jesus, the disciples want to call down fire from heaven to consume them. Verse 54. Alright, now that doesn't really suit our modern sensibilities. But it actually might not be as bad of a desire as it initially appears. After all, what could be more deserving of judgment than to reject God's Son? And John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And there were biblical precedents for raining down fire from heaven upon God's enemies. In Genesis 19, which we read about in 2 Peter 2, God destroys Sodom with fire and sulfur from heaven because of their sin. In 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah calls down fire from heaven upon God's enemies. So the condemnation of the Samaritan village is warranted. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. And the Samaritan village certainly had sinned. So what's wrong with what the disciples ask Jesus? Why does Jesus rebuke them? In verse 55. The disciples were lacking awareness of their context in redemptive history. They were unaware of where they fit in the unfolding story of human history. And unaware of God's purposes for the human race in their time and place. In Genesis and in, in 2 Kings, when God rained down fire, God was primarily revealing His justice. Grace was there, to be sure. Grace has been in the picture ever since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve fell into sin. But in order to make sure that humans understood our hopelessness and our guilt before God... God spent a lengthy time emphasizing His justice. 
in the way that he related to the human race. If you don't believe me, just go read the Old Testament and look at the proportion of justice and grace. With the arrival of Jesus, however, the emphasis had changed. God is as just now as He has ever been. God is as wrathful of sin, towards sin, as He has ever been. And God is no more gracious now than He has ever been. But in terms of emphasis, the light of God's grace is shining more brightly now through His Son than it ever has in human history. God is emphasizing His grace towards humans through Jesus Christ ever since His Son was born in Bethlehem. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9 says that God is now being patient toward us humans. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4 says that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Therefore, John 3.18 says that God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Judgment is coming, to be sure. Condemnation for those who have rejected Jesus is coming. But the disciples, like us, lived after the birth of God's Son in this present season where God is exercising patience and leaving ample room for repentance. To be too quick to pull the trigger on God's enemies would be to miss what God is doing in human history right now. Exercising patience and grace with the intention of seeing many undeserving sinners come to faith in Christ. Incidentally, this is why Paul urges us in Romans 12 not to take vengeance on our enemies, saying, leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, wrath is coming, judgment is coming, but now is not the time. Be patient and gracious, Christians, towards God's enemies and towards your enemies as God Himself is. Hope and pray that they would reach repentance rather than perish. As Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. The disciples lacked an awareness of their context in redemptive history. And we often lack the same awareness. Every time that we respond with vengeance towards those who hate God and hate us, every time we mete out judgment, to those who hate God and hate us, we are doing so before the appointed time. 
And we are like these disciples seeking to call down fire when God has sent His Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. We are being very much unlike God who is presently being patient towards His enemies, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the disciples are lacking faith, understanding, humility, perspective, and awareness of context. Finally, let's look at verses 57 to 62. In this section, in, in addition to all of the aforementioned failures, this is perhaps the pinnacle failure of all would-be disciples of Christ. We lack the ability to follow Him. Jesus' command in Luke 9.23 to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily and follow Him, is more radical than we are capable of. The first would-be disciple comes to Jesus with good intentions. I will follow you wherever you go. Verse 57. Jesus' response in verse 58 could be paraphrased. No, you won't. Jesus' response reveals the man's underestimation of what discipleship will require. The second man responds to Jesus' call with a request to delay a commitment to discipleship. Contrary to what we might assume at first glance, this guy's not asking simply to attend his father's funeral. If the father had died already, the man wouldn't be in Jesus' presence. As a good Jew, abiding by the norms of his Jewish culture and endeavoring to obey the principle of honoring your father and mother as he would have understood it, if his, this man is... This man would have been at home if his father had already died, not following along in the crowd of Jesus. So this man is asking to wait until his father had passed away. First, let me bury my father. I will follow you, but there are a few loose ends that i got to tie up. There are some previous commitments. And after I fulfill my previous commitments, then I will follow you. Obviously, this could be months or years from now. This man is saying, yes, I'll follow you as soon as. Now the third person wants to follow Jesus, but his interests are divided. He wants to follow Jesus, but he doesn't have undivided resolve to do this. He can't leave everything behind to follow Jesus. Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, anyone who tries to follow Jesus while looking back at what he left behind, what happens if you try to cut your lawn like that with your lawnmower? <laughs> Not going to cut a very straight line. And you can't follow Jesus in a very straight line while you're looking back. We could say that we're better than these would-be followers. But a quick look at our track record would prove otherwise. Have you ever failed to follow Jesus into discomfort? Have you ever delayed obedience? I will be faithful to Jesus and follow Jesus in the next season of life. Alright? When you're, when you're single, you're going to follow Jesus once you get married. Right? 
when you get married, you're going to follow Jesus once things stabilize and you settle down and buy a house or, or you know, have kids or whatever. Or maybe you're in the young kid phase and you're like, well, I'll follow Jesus when it's not so crazy. Right? Once the kids grow up and family life gets a little... And then they get a little bit older and say, well, yeah, the teenagers are a handful. You know, and we're dealing with all these problems and we're driving them here and there. And, you know, that, it is what it is, but soon they're going to move out and we'll follow Jesus when we're empty nesters. And on and on it goes. Or just in the microcosm. <laughs> just like... The, the diet that you're going to start on January 1st, right? There's a new pattern of following Jesus happening Monday, right? From, from tomorrow, I'm going to get serious about following the Lord. Or have we ever looked back at what we left behind? These are not failures unique to these three individuals. These are failures common to all who attempt to follow Jesus. Jesus says that we must deny ourselves, take up our crosses daily and follow Him. But we are not able to do this. We have not done it and we cannot do it. Sure, there are instances where we have done it. There are some examples we can point to in the history of our lives where we have done it. But we have not utterly abandoned ourselves to the cause of Christ in a sustained and a consistent way. We are not totally dead to ourselves. We are not unwavering disciples. Even the best disciples among us can look back at times they've chosen a warm bed instead of prayer and Bible reading. They can look back and see many times that they decided that they were going to repent of a particular sin that they were convicted of tomorrow. They can look back and see that they have plowed crooked lines in God's field. These three would-be followers of Jesus are failures who lack the ability to follow Christ, and so are we. In that sense, that little section, 57 to 62, <coughs> serves as like a summary of that last half of Luke 9. All these specific ways that the disciples fail. And then just generally, just following Christ. Nah, we can't do it. We fail. They fail, we fail. So the second half of Luke drives on the point and culminates in that last section. The disciples are failures. And if we're honest, we know that we are failures too. And if you say, well, I'm not, so that makes me the greatest, then I would point you back to verse 46 and say, yeah, I, I got you, you're a failure too. I was thinking this week about my failures as a Christian, my failures as a pastor. All too often, I lack faith. I lack understanding. I lack humility. I lack perspective. I lack awareness of context. And I lack the ability to follow 
Christ the way that I ought to. In many ways, I am a failure. And in many ways, you are a failure too. Well, now that I've encouraged you all, we can conclude the sermon. <laughs> Look in this passage at what Jesus does for failures. In spite of all the defic- disciples' deficiencies, right in the middle of this passage, Jesus resolutely determines to go to the cross for them. Look at verse 51. Jesus set His face to go to Jerusalem. Saying that He set His face is an idiom, meaning that He resolved to go to Jerusalem. And this is right in the middle of a long section about the disciples' failures, one after another, after another, after another, after another, which I have just belabored the point. Right in the middle of all this, at a low point in the disciples' performance, what is Jesus doing? Setting His face to go to Jerusalem. And what's going to happen in Jerusalem? Jesus is going to ride in on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah that He is the Son of David. The anointed one. And he knows that these crowds will be calling for his crucifixion a few days later. He knows all that will happen to him there. He predicts in verse 22 of Luke 9 that he will die. He predicts it again in verse 44 that he will die. He knows full well that first he will hear Hosanna. But then those shouts will give way to a much more sinister shout. Crucify. Crucify. Sinners lacking faith, understanding, humility, perspective, context, and ability need a Savior. I need a Savior. You need a Savior. And Jesus steps up to the plate. Left to ourselves, we would fumble around in the darkness, not even knowing what we're supposed to be looking for. Left to ourselves, we would be heading for certain death, physical and spiritual. We need rescue. And Jesus resolved. He set His face to rescue us. 1 John 2.2 says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Which means that Jesus suffered the punishment that we, for all of these sins and shortcomings that we're looking at today, Jesus suffered the wrath of God that we deserve for them. So that the wrath of God is diverted or propitiated away from us. Jesus knew that in Jerusalem He would be betrayed Falsely accused, tried unfairly, mocked, tortured, stripped naked, and hung on a cross for the disciples who lacked faith, understanding, humility, perspective, context, and ability. Jesus went to rescue these guys. And Jesus went there to rescue us. And then in spite of all the disciples' deficiencies, Jesus commissions the disciples to 
to continue engaging in ministry. That's why I read chapter 10 and verse 1, which you probably thought as I was reading was unrelated. Look at, look at chapter 10 and verse 1, though. On the heels of all these failings, one after another, chapter 10 and verse 1 reads like this. The Lord Jesus appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of Him, two by two, into every town and place where He Himself was about to go. So, Jesus not only sets His face to Jerusalem for these guys to rescue them from the penalty that they deserve because of their sin. But Jesus commissions these guys to work in His kingdom. To do His work. Though they are very imperfect servants. Jesus knows they lack faith. But He commissions them to exercise whatever they have. Jesus knows they lack understanding, but He commissions them to put what little of it they have to good use. Jesus knows they lack humility, perspective, and context, but He sends them out anyway. He knows they lack ability, but He sends them out to try. And this salvation and commission of failures highlights the contrast that I mentioned at the beginning. Luke 9 shows the contrast between Jesus' glory and our insufficiency. Between Jesus' goodness and our badness. Luke 9 shows us the contrast between Jesus' power and our omnipotence. Or, or not our omnipotence, our impotence. Jesus' omnipotence and our impotence. Jesus chooses to save failures from the punishment that we deserve so that the world will see that His goodness and not ours is the basis of our salvation. Jesus chooses to commission failures to His service and to work through us as failures so that the world will see that it is His power and not ours which affects change and accomplishes His will. Not only can God shoot a straight arrow with a crooked bow, not only can God draw a straight line with a crooked stick, but God delights to shoot straight arrows with crooked bows. And God delights to draw straight lines with crooked sticks. So the world will see who is great. Not us. God is great. Jesus is great. When failures like us are saved, and when kingdom work gets done through bumbling failures like us, the takeaway lesson for the watching world is this. God must have done it. No, no way that He did that. No way that she did that. Look at it. Look at look at how that guy changed. No way that little church was able to make that lasting change in that guy's life. That little community of faith. The lesson, the takeaway. God must have done it. This is what the watching world sees when God works through people like us. God. 
doesn't love us and use us in His kingdom because we're awesome. Jesus loves us and uses us in His kingdom because He is awesome. I told you this before, but I'll say it again. Boy, I saw this tract one time. And I didn't write this down, it just came to mind, so I'll have to paraphrase. But the, right on the front of the tract was something like, God could really use a man like you in his kingdom. <laughs> something like that. And I just thought, man, what a bad way to go about evangelism, man. Reinforcing people's conceptions of just how good they are and how important they are and how valuable they are and what an asset they would be to God and how much they could save God and how much they could bless God and how indebted God would be to them if they would just choose Christ. It's all backwards. It's all backwards. God does not love us and use us in His kingdom because we are awesome, but because He is awesome. He loves failures like the disciples who we read about in the Scripture today. He loves failures like me. He loves failures like you. Embrace the fact that He has called you just as you are. Don't wait until you're worthy to answer the call of Christ to follow Him. Don't wait until you're worthy to get busy with kingdom work. Well, when I reach the next level of Christian maturity, that's when I'm going to start sharing the gospel with my family and my friends. When I reach the next level of Christian maturity, then I'm going to start sacrificing of my time and my energy to serve the brethren. When I reach the next level of Christian maturity, then I'm going to do this or that, whatever it is. But don't wait. Know that it is God's plan from eternity past to love save, transform, and commission failures like us in His service. God actually desires the contrast between our glory and His. Rejoice in the glory of God in saving sinners like us and then use your measly little arms to take up your cross. Stumble along behind the plow furrowing as straight a line as you can. Know that God is pleased to work in you and through you in this way, highlighting the contrast between imperfect people and our perfect God. Our lives ought to read like Luke 9. Jesus is great and glorious, and we are not. But He loves us anyway. That might be a good thing to put on your tombstone one day. 